Good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. God is patient. And he's patiently calling us to participate and collaborate with him on the work of justice. This litany describes what's going on in Palestine. And I invite you at the end of each passage to repeat with us, God, feel our pain. We have been displaced and made refugees in our own land. Like more than 750,000 Palestinians, my family was driven from our homes in Jerusalem during the Nakba of 1948. We are not allowed to return to our properties that have belonged to us for more than generations. We are humiliated and harassed when we try to visit our families in Palestine or Israel. And more than 500 of our towns and villages were destroyed throughout Palestine. God, feel feel our our pain. pain. Our sisters and brothers live under a harsh military occupation. Since 67, our civil liberties and human rights have been taken away from us by the harsh, illegal 47-year-old occupation. We are forced to carry racially and religiously based identification papers. Even within our own towns and villages, our freedom of movement is capriciously controlled by the Israeli army through hundreds of checkpoints and permanent obstacles. The checkpoints which are within the West Bank prevent us from going to our jobs, farms, schools, places of worship, and even to visit each other. Israel often uses collective punishment, ordering prolonged curfews on towns and villages. Many Palestinian boys and young men and women are administratively arrested without cause and spend weeks and months in jail without any charges. God, feel our pain. pain. Our land has been taken from us, and we're forced to live in segregated, isolated places. The most desirable Palestinian land in the West Bank has been taken to build illegal settlements, which are exclusively for Jews. There are more than 200 settlements throughout the West Bank that house more than 600,000 Israelis. These settlements can more accurately be called colonies. More land is being confiscated to build the 25-foot-high concrete segregation wall that snakes through Palestinian land. Once finished, it will be more than 273 miles long, which is about the distance between Sacramento and Bakersfield. Even more Palestinian land within the West Bank is being taken to build military bases or training sites and firing zones. As a result of Israel's ongoing land grabs, Palestinians have been forced to live in about 12% of the land designated as Palestine in 1948. God, feel our pain. Homes are being demolished. Since the beginning of the occupation in 67, Israel has demolished over 25,000 homes, displacing 160,000 men, women, children. This is a systematic policy of one people dispossessing another and taking their lands and right to self-determination. Israeli personnel using American-made caterpillar bulldozers 
specifically modified for this purpose, carry out these demolitions under the protections of soldiers. The Palestinian homeowner never knows when the demolition of their home will take place. Often the sound of the caterpillar will wake up the family and they are given 10-15 minutes to move their belongings out before the demolition begins. God, God feel, feel our pain. Our precious life-giving water is being taken. Even though the annual rainfall in the West Bank is more than the rainfall in London, water supply to Palestinians is critically low and below international standards. The Israeli government has taken control of Palestine's subterranean aquifers and redirected those waters to the illegal settlements. Israel has undertaken a systematic policy that does not permit Palestinians to build new cisterns. They've destroyed essential cisterns that were repaired. The last United Nations information indicates that the illegal Israeli settler in the West Bank uses 79 gallons of water per day, while an average Palestinian is limited to less than 8 gallons of water per day, four and a half times less. These disturbing facts are more serious because the average settler generally works in large Israeli cities, while many Palestinians are farmers and dependent on the land and the precious, scarce water. Many Palestinians use the stolen water to fill community pools and water their lawns, which are unheard of in Palestine. God, feel our pain. Olive trees are being destroyed. The olive tree was first domesticated in Palestine. In fact, it's a symbol of our cause. And the olive tree is considered to be a part of the family because it takes generations to grow. Cultivating an olive tree takes many years and a great deal of patience and love. In addition, the meager Palestinian economy is dependent on the olive tree. Since the occupation, Israel has destroyed 800,000 of these trees. It would take 30 New York Central Parks to hold that many olive trees. The destruction affected 80,000 families and cost the Palestinian economy $12.5 million, totaling more about $600 million over the life of the occupation. God, feel, feel our pain. pain. لم يعرفوني في الظلال التي تمتص لوني بجواز السفر وكان جرحي عندهم معرضا لسائح يعشق جمع الصور Our Palestinian national poet Mahmoud Darwish wrote this poem called Passport. It is a reclaiming of our identity, not through an identification paper, but through belonging to the land, which we have done for centuries. I'll read it to you, and the words I just hummed. They did not recognize me in the shadows that sucked away my color in this passport. And to them, my wound was an exhibit for a tourist who loves to collect photographs. They did not recognize me. Ah, oh, don't leave the palm of my hand without the sun. Because the trees recognize me. 
Don't leave me pale like the moon. All the birds that followed my palm to the door of the distant airport. All the wheat fields, the prisons, the white tombstones, the barbed boundaries, the waving handkerchiefs. The eyes were with me. But they dropped them from my passport, stripped of my name and identity, on soil I nourished with my hands. Today Job cried out, filling the sky, don't make an example of me again, O gentlemen prophets. Don't ask the trees for their names, don't ask the valleys who their mother is. From my forehead bursts the sword of light, and from my hand springs the water of the river. All the hearts of the people are my identity, so go ahead and take away my passport. Thank you. And we want to thank you for having us here this morning. We especially want to thank Pastor Kelly for graciously opening her pulpit to us. Our goal is to remain faithful to our scriptures. We also want to thank Susan Paget and Jim Kramer and this, uh, this service, Terry, for being so good to us and making us feel so hospitable. Thank you all. And as you saw, our message today is about belonging. And that's a powerful human drive. We belong to so many different groups. Without our choosing, we are born into our family. Our family teaches us the language we speak. We learn about our lineage, heritage, history, and customs through our family. Our family enables us to identify as English or Irish or Italian or Chinese or Vietnamese or Mexican or even Palestinian. Our family has a strong effect on our worldview, our attitudes, and our behaviors. Our family gives us a strong sense of belonging. I'm 11 years old. My mother, my father, my sister, my brother are sitting next to me on a plane and I look out and I see this large wing of a plane. And I think to myself, we're finally going to Disneyland where my aunt used to bring me those loafers with uh, different characters on them. The excitement of the roller coasters run through my body up and down. We land. What's your name? What kind of name is it? The immigration officer takes our papers, examines them carefully, and perceives. Name? Weird. <laughs> Country? Non-existent. Color? Bordering on light enough to be American, maybe features a bit too dark. Parents? Thankfully can pass for normal. I get a feeling that something is different than I'm not able to name as a child. It's a deep sense of being the other already being tinged into my spirit, just hovering over the surface. The feeling is not brought about by anything the officer said. It's more the exchange of glances and the power dynamic that happens. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, and a glance, I say, can strike a thousand emotions. The immigration officer politely welcomes us to the U.S. of America. Full of joy and exhilaration, we march on to freedom land with those tinges of wariness of being the other, somewhat belonging, but not yet sure. As an immigrant growing up in Brooklyn, New York, my uncommon nationality and unusual language 
made me feel like I didn't belong. I was born in Beirut, Lebanon, to a Lebanese mother and a Palestinian father. The same year, my family was driven from their homes in Jerusalem. The language we speak at home is Arabic. As a result, I'm called an Arab, and that just didn't fit well in the world in which I was living. Our neighborhood in the inner city of Brooklyn was made up of Irish and Italian Catholics. I was a Palestinian Arab who happened to be a Christian. What's worse, I was a Protestant. (laughs) I was taught that somehow immigrants would naturally melt into the larger American society. This melting pot theory didn't seem to work for me. Yes, I started to learn English. My wife would say not well. Yes, I fell in love with the national pastime, and that's baseball for me. Yes, I enjoyed rock and roll and doo-wop music, and I wore tight, straight-legged blue jeans and penny loafers. I took on these traits and characteristics of being an American, but being an Arab never, ever melted away. We still spoke Arabic at home. We still maintained our customs and celebrations and ceremonies. We still ate our unique foods, which were so much better. My experience doesn't show America as a melting pot. For me, America is more like a stained glass window. Each colorful, unique, and distinctive piece of glass is an immigrant family holding on to its identity. The metal that binds the pieces together represents some of the things that make us American. That includes such things as our English language, our constitution and form of democracy, our public education system, our free enterprise system, and our popular culture of sports, recreation, and and entertainment, which gives everyone something to talk about on Facebook and around the water fountain. When I was enrolled in seventh grade, for months I just looked at the mouths of my classmates moving up and down, and I just shook my head up and down in accordance with their mouth. When I heard at the end of a a sentence a high intonation, I guessed it was a question, and I just laughed, hoping to belong and get away without answering it. In gym class, that's my favorite... I always looked for the overweight kid because while it was at his cost, it meant that I was not going to be the last one picked to be on the American football team game. Nobody explained to me the game. I didn't know what it was. I just learned after a couple of runs when somebody does this and says hut, I just start running from side to side. I just start running from one end of the gym to the other. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't think anybody would throw me the ball, and they never did. Belonging to a family, to a tribe, to community, what does it mean and when does it happen? Is it defined by identity or is it defined by language and culture? Had I come to this country fluent in English and a football star... Would I have been accepted with open arms and welcomed to belong to this community? At my childhood church, our friends were surprised, many shocked, to learn we were Arabs and Christians. They didn't realize, nor could they reconcile the fact, 
that I was born and raised a Christian Arab family. They also didn't understand that my ancestors practiced Christianity some 1,100 years before Christopher Columbus discovered America. As a matter of fact, the church in Gaza where my father was baptized is celebrating its 1,610th anniversary this year. Well, hold it. That wasn't loud enough. Let me repeat this. Our, that church is celebrating 1,610th anniversary this year. Woo! That's it. It was, it was built in 404 after the Common Era and still stands on the same foundation. Just like our friends in church, my teachers in school, and our neighbors showed the same confusion about my identity. How could I be a Christian and an Arab? I know what it means to be an Arab, but what does it mean to be a Christian? What made matters worse, there came the Iraq War, the second, well, the first Palestinian uprising continued, the second one came, the peace process came and went, the Iraq War, 911, 9-11. Every single year, there was something that rocked my sense of belonging in this culture just when I thought that I finally did belong. As a Palestinian American, I wanted to desperately belong to both families. But there was no way of merging the two together. These families, like most, scream, yell at each other, throw things sometimes, but sometimes more than just insults. At one point, I realized that I'm just forcing healing onto this relationship, and it was not working. And by forcing this healing, it backfired on me, and I was blinded in both eyes, because I developed a log in one eye and a speck in the other. When the log in my right eye spoke to the speck in my left eye, it told it that it wasn't violent. It said that its actions were done in self-defense, preemptory self-defense, or as sometimes likes to be called, collateral damage. When the, eye in the, when the speck spoke to eye with the log, it said that its violent actions were deserved revenge, acts of heroism, martyrdom, but never violent actions because they started it first. So I learned that in order to take the log and the speck out of my eyes, I needed to understand that I was both a victim and a perpetrated of, perpetrator of violence, and so were to my two communities. And that with this understanding, I could free myself. I had seen soldiers throw tear bombs and rubber bullets at demonstrators. And I had also seen my own internal violence unleashed on soldiers. I had felt misery when I marched many times in young men and women's funerals, but I also felt the deep pain of the internal hatred I was burying inside my heart. I had seen the despair that violence breeds on the faces of our Palestinian and American children, and I had come too many times face to face with the ugliness that it engendered inside me. With the blindness, however, I gained an internal sight that I'd like to call a calm love that develops from letting go and letting God. What I came to understand is that violence is insecurity, and we are all insecure. 
That calm love helped me to understand what Paul meant by there is no, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, nor is there gay or straight. That was not in Paul's words. For you all are one in Christ, Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seeds and heirs according to the promise. Since then, I have been on a journey of letting go of my family as I understood it, confined by ethnicity, race, geography, and I started belonging to a heavenly family. Not a heavenly one that only belongs in heaven, but one that is on earth as it is in heaven. That is our prayer. And that family accepts everyone. It is a family that has learned to take the log out of its own eye. I finally learned that my family is made up of people who share the same values of peace and nonviolence that I try to live up to. That family is inclusive of all people but excludes violence. It is not limited by any group of persons or any creed. This community knows and understands that the only power of violence is a powerful weakness of the spirit. And that while male and female, Greek and Jew, gay and straight have to be appreciated, it is more important to understand that we are all made in the image of God. Jesus, a first century Palestinian Jew, taught his disciples and all of us who call ourselves Christians a prayer that binds us together. This prayer is teaching me what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Christianity, with all of its divisions, diversity and variety, is united with this simple yet powerful prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, in his prayer, envisions a world under the rule of God, not empire. The phrases, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, occur more than a hundred times in the Christian scriptures. What is even more interesting is that the Greek word basilia is a translation of the Hebrew word malkuth, which is most likely the word that Jesus used when he taught his disciples how to pray. Malkuth does not define kingdom as a territory or rule over land. More accurately, it describes God's dominion or sovereignty over God's creation. In this prayer, Jesus is calling us to be under the sovereignty of a God of justice and love. The kingdom of God defines our relationship with God as one of parent and child, and our relationships with each other as ones of brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God on earth is a radical departure from the cruel and oppressive empires under which the people of first century Palestine lived. In this prayer, long before there was a religion called Christianity, Jesus, a practicing Jew, is calling all people to relate to each other with love, compassion, and righteousness under the sovereignty of God of love and justice. In this prayer, Jesus is emphasizing God's desire to establish God's kingdom on earth, built on the principles of justice. 
So people in Palestine and here ask me, why do I continue to preach nonviolence? I don't always live up to it, but I always preach it. That's why we come to church. My immediate response is, how am I to think that I have the right to use violence against anyone who belongs to the image of God, be it neighbor or enemy? I miss the mark at times, but I violent fiction. But besides my deep moral objection to violence, it has not worked for us on a tactical level as Palestinians, who are much worse off nowadays than decades ago. And the only thing that violence had done is actually hijack our cause. It has failed to show the international community the violence and the humiliation of the occupation that we're talking about today. If the occupation has put a gag against our mouths as Palestinians, I believe our own internal violence and our own external violence has shoved that gag deep into our mouths. Nonviolence for the Palestinians and Israelis is our only opportunity and chance to end the suffering of two peoples with similar histories whose suffering is inextricably intertwined. My question back to people is why violence especially when we know that nothing good comes out of violence since Cain and Abel. Why violence after great persons like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and many others that are, I consider, of violence works? God's passion for justice can be seen in the words of the Hebrew prophets. The prophet Amos is a loud voice for justice. He made it very clear what God was expecting from God's people. He said, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river righteousness like a never-failing stream. God's passion for justice can be seen in the work of Micah, in the words of Micah. Tradition has it that when the Jews in the diaspora were trying to understand their relationship with God, they asked Micah, what would God want us to do? They were trying to understand their developing relationships with non-Jews with whom they were now living. They were also confused about their evolving relationship with God, who they thought only lived back in Jerusalem. They were hoping that their prophet would simply say, give better offerings and do it more often. However, Micah boldly said, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Unfortunately, justice, mercy, and humility were in short supply then, but Micah didn't back down. That's what God wanted God's people to do then, and I believe that's what God wants us to do now, even though justice, mercy, and humility are still in short supply. We've been given justice and love as God's powerful forces in building God's kingdom on earth. John Dominic Crossan, in his short reflection on the Lord's Prayer, entitled The Greatest Prayer, tells us that justice and love are inseparable forces. He says, Think of justice 
as the body of love and love as the soul of justice. Marcus Borg defines justice as the impact of relationships between and among people. He concludes that justice is evident when both people in a relationship flourish and grow. When one is diminished, justice is absent. And in his last sermon before his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. defines justice within the context of our society. He said, Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Amen. I'm a Palestinian Arab-American Christian, and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I can't think of anything better to which I can belong. And we can continue Martin Luther King's dream by dreaming ourselves. I'm sure many of you have dreams, and I would say write them down. I would love to sit next to him, maybe not stand, sit on the bench behind him or next to him and dream of belonging myself. I would dream that one day the checkpoints will evaporate into the realm of the clouds and that they would rain their hatred on another earth. I would dream that one day the tears of Palestinian and Israeli men and women are reserved for their sons' and daughters' weddings and not funerals. I would dream that one day our Palestinian and Israeli children would visit each other to play rather than to fight. I would dream to empty hatred upon God's feet and to gain insight into her heart and dreams for us. I would dream of a beautiful reality, one born out of dreams rather than one walled in between communities. I also have a dream, Lord. Amen.